All right, well, welcome. My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here. I am Becky's only husband. <laughs> so, yeah, so if this is your first time here, just thanks for coming. Really glad you can make it. I'm just really glad to see you all here. And, uh, yeah, so just to catch you up, so here at River City, we've been slowly preaching through the book of Matthew and um, just this year, so, which is in the New Testament. And this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 23. There's 28 chapters in Matthew, so we're almost to the end of it. So um, we're going to be finishing up that probably before the, end of, before the fall. So, so just so you know, uh, the sermon this week is kind of going to be a sequel from last week. So, but if you weren't here, that, that's not the end of the world, so you aren't, you aren't missing anything. So, but, um, but if you haven't read Matthew 23 before, this is, just spoiler, spoiler alert, um, this is where Jesus strongly and actively opposes the religious leaders of his day. So, which the optics of that might sound a little strange, like look a little strange at first glance, just because sometimes it's easy to assume that God is automatically impressed with religious leaders. But from a gospel perspective, that's not necessarily the case. So let's just use me for an example, since I'm the one with the microphone and everything. Um, So since I'm technically a religious leader, even though that is not my favorite title, it's kind of gross to me for sure. But like, so um, let's use me as an example. So the reason why God is impressed with me isn't because I have a degree or it's not because I have advanced knowledge of some kind, and it's, not like I, and it's not because I have a special title as pastor. No, the reason why God is impressed with me is because he's impressed with Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life that I was supposed to live, like he died the death that I was supposed to die, like he perfectly loved, he perfectly served, he perfectly obeyed. It's like, like he did everything that I was supposed to do, but I didn't. But the good news is that when I surrendered to Jesus and I put my faith in him, the perfect life of Jesus was transferred and credited to me as a gift. And the fancy theological way to say that is that he gave me his righteousness. So that now, through faith in Jesus, when God looks at me, he sees the perfect life and track record of of his son. And that's the only reason that God is impressed by me. It's not because I'm a pastor or I'm some kind of religious leader. No, he's impressed with me because I put my faith in him. Just like I hope you have. So that's one of the ways that even as a pastor, like you are more like me than unlike me. You are more like me than unlike me. And that dovetails with last week's sermon where we honed in on like, How when we look at the sin and the foolishness of others, we should recognize that in one way or another, we are more like those people than unlike those people. We are more like them than unlike them. That's because there are a few struggles in others that don't also exist in some way in us. And that's true even when it comes to the bad guy religious leaders that we see in the Bible because it's really easy and tempting to look at the bad guy religious leaders in the Bible and think, wow, like, they are so, I am so unlike them. But as we saw last week, like, when we scratch the surface of our own hearts, what we find is that we are more like them than unlike them. 
And that makes sense because from a gospel perspective, the world isn't divided into good guys and bad guys. No, no, no. Like from a gospel perspective, the world is divided into like, like we're all the bad guys and Jesus is the good guy. So just like last week, we're going to run it back again this morning, just like a pickup basketball game. This morning, we're going to see like how when it comes to the religious leaders, we are more like them than unlike them. So I'm going to be reading in Matthew chapter 23. I'm just going to explain it a little bit as we go along. I'm going to explain one of the big ways that we're like the Pharisees in this passage. And then I'm going to show us how the gospel just frees us from that. So let's pray. So God, like, um, we really need your help to just really see um, how you interacted with the Pharisees in this passage. And we really need you to just really see how um, your heart for how change happens. Like, we really need that. Um, we need to understand that in our minds. We need to understand that in our hearts. And we just pray that um, you'll just really help us with that, God. So um, I pray that that will just really emanate from the scriptures really well. So, yeah, we love you so much. Amen. All right, so we're going to read uh, from Matthew chapter, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 28, which that'll be up on the screen if you want to follow along on um, a device or like your Bible, that'd be great. So, so again, uh, the Pharisees, this was a really conservative and legalistic group of religious leaders, and they had just finished a very unsuccessful series of attempts at trapping Jesus in his words. And they, and they, they were trying to trap Jesus in his words because ultimately they had no interest in surrendering to him as their king and lord. Verse 13, Jesus says to them, he's saying this to the Pharisees, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. It's really heavy. So the Pharisees were people with an extremely high position in the Jewish culture. And that position came with lots of authority and influence, and it took them years of rabbinical schooling to achieve that position, and they had a tremendous amount of Bible knowledge. If you were a Pharisee in that culture, you, ha- you were required to have the entire Old Testament memorized, which, that's a lot. Okay. It's like, there was just lots of requirements, there were just like lots of schooling, and on top of that, verse 15 says that they had a really strong missional and evangelistic culture zeal to them which that all sounds like the kind of resume that you'd love to see if you were on a pastoral search committee of some kind. Of some kind. But Jesus cares about something much deeper than outward appearances. In verse 13, he more or less sums up the fruitfulness of, their, of the Pharisees' ministry by saying, you shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. Like, you yourselves don't enter, and you ain't letting anybody else enter that's like, either. You aren't even citizens of the kingdom that you think you're proclaiming. That's how poorly you understand the message that you're talking about. That's how poorly you're communicating and proclaiming the message of the gospel. 
So what's an example of the message that they're proclaiming? Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. If anyone swears by the gold of the temple, it is bound by that oath. You blind fools. What is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone who swears by the gift of the, on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men. What is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by an everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by an, and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. And I know that's confusing, okay? So, all right, so let's just pump the brakes. So I know that's confusing, but if we just think about it, like if somebody from the first century came and sat in on your fantasy football draft, they would be really confused too, okay? So this is not weird, all right? So let's just, I'm not going to bog us down in everything that Jesus is saying here, but it's important to know that the game plan, big picture, the game plan of the Pharisees was to take what the Bible said, then they added and heaped on a bunch of extra rules and traditions to the Bible, and then they told people that you have to obey all that if you want God to be impressed by you. Just big picture, that's just what they were saying. So over the course of time, the Pharisees just kept heaping on and heaping on until the message of the Bible had just become really, really distorted. And that's a problem. And that's why, like, in, in this little passage right here in 16 through 22, um, Jesus essentially says to the Pharisees, you say blank. Okay? In other words, the stuff that you've just been heap, heaping on and adding to the Bible. And Jesus basically says, that stuff you're saying, that's ridiculous. All these rules and traditions that you're heaping on and adding to the Bible they ultimately hinder people from being transformed by God in their heart. That's why Mark chapter 7 says, and this isn't going to be on the screen here, but Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. So the, and it says, So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? In other words, like all the stuff that we added to the Bible and everything. He replied, Isaiah was right about you when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So then Jesus double downs on his point here in verse 23. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the the more important things of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but you swallow a camel. So Jesus is saying, wow, like you guys are so into your extra rules and traditions that you tithe out of your spice rack. 
Like, great job tithing out of your spice rack. You guys are really the extra super holy people. It's like you got that spice rack tithing just down pat. That's great. Great job, man. And in the meantime, as you've been tithing out of your spice rack, you've missed the boat on the bigger and weightier things that the Bible talks about, like justice and mercy and faithfulness, which is the equivalence of straining out this gnat but then swallowing a camel, which when you think about it, that's a really funny word picture, swallowing a camel. It's like you work so hard to strain out this tiny little gnat so that you don't accidentally ingest it, and then like in the meantime, you're just like, I'm just going to swallow this camel. You know, it's like, like, which is actually pretty funny because Jesus is using humor as a rhetorical device to make a point because Jesus kind of had a sense of humor every once in a while. It's like, I can just imagine the, you know, he's talking to the Pharisees about this and there's people in the crowd that are just kind of listening in on this and they're just like, oh man, did you hear what he said? He said that like all these like extra rules and traditions, that's like, you know, straining out a gnat, but then he swallowed a camel. Like, dude, this guy is killing it with the camel jokes here, okay? <laughs> it's like, because, like, he had a sense of humor every once in a while. It's like, you know, that, that camel through the eye of a needle thing, it doesn't fit. Like, even if you grease the camel and push, it doesn't fit. Like, Jesus was funny, okay? It's a joke. Here's where Jesus gets to the real crux of the issue, verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will be clean. So let's make sure we're, we're not missing the deep significance of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that if you want someone to have their life be changed, then there's a specific order in which that needs to happen. Kind of like when it comes to math, there's an order of operations. Like you remember that from seventh grade. I have a seventh grade daughter, so we talk about these kind of things. It's like there's an order of operations. Like, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. See, some of you forgot about that, but then, like, welcome back. This is seventh grade math class. All right? So, like, there's an order of operations. So, because, like, in the, with the order of operations and with math, it's like there's specific rules because, like, if you add, and so add or subtract before you multiply and divide, you're going to get a different outcome if you, than if you did it the other way. So, if you want an, a certain outcome, you need to follow like, the orders of operations. So, according to Jesus, there are two different orders of operations when it comes to people having their life be changed. The Pharisees, on one hand, focused first on cleaning the outside of the person, which is a lot where their extra rules and traditions came from. It's like, man, it's like if I clean the outside of the person. But Jesus says that when that happens first, then the inside of the person doesn't actually end up getting clean. But in verse 26, Jesus advocates the gospel approach to change which is to focus first on cleaning the inside of a person, and then the outside will also become clean. Like, that is how change and transformation happens according to Jesus. Gospel transformation happens from the inside out, not the other way around. 
27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Man, there's just like, there's a tomb that holds these dead, dead things in, in there. It's just like, and it's just painted really white and just beautiful on the outside. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Outward appearances were the highest form of currency in the Pharisees' religious economy. But keep in mind that, like, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with outward appearances. Can we just say that? But the problem with outward appearances, according to Jesus, is when transformation of our outward appearance comes at the expense of our transformation of our hearts. The problem with outward appearances, according to Jesus, is when the transformation of our outward appearance or how we appear to each other, how we like, you know, how that comes at the expense of the transformation of our heart. And like I said in the intro, it's really easy and tempting to look at the Pharisees and think, wow, I am so unlike them. But when we, again, when we scratch the surface of our hearts, what we find is that we are more like them than unlike them. So with that in mind, I'm going to just unpack one big way in this passage that we are um, more like the Pharisees than unlike them. And that is when we focus on changing our outward behavior at the expense of our heart. When we focus on changing our outward behavior at the expense of our heart. And most importantly, I'm also going to talk about how the gospel sets us free when it comes to this stuff. So think about something in you, about yourself that you want to make a change in. So think about something either you have wanted to make a change in or you do want to make a change in, um, how you outwardly present yourself to others, how you appear, um, something you want to do. Like, what's something that you want to change? I'll just assume that you're thinking about something. You don't need to say it out loud. Um, so if you're going to follow Jesus, one of the big questions that you need to ask is, why do you want to change in that way in the first place? Like, because obviously you have a desire to change, but what's, what's motivating your desire to change? Because the way that you answer that is a window into how your heart needs to believe the gospel. The way that you answer that is a window into how your heart needs to believe the gospel. Because from a Christian perspective, the way that we are transformed is by believing the gospel. So I'm going to give three very non-comprehensive uh, examples and w- of ways that we sometimes want to change. Uh, some of them may be relevant for you. Sometimes they may be relevant for someone you know. <laughs> so, um, so I'm just going to talk about how the gospel like, just really... Uh, the gospel in our heart really fits in with that. So, so, for, so first, first example, so for example, um, sometimes we want to change our relationship status. Sometimes we want to change our relationship status. 
So from a gospel perspective, the important question to ask is, why do we want to change our relationship status? And why do you want to get into a certain relationship? Is it because you ultimately want to love and care for someone in a unique way as an overflow of how you've been loved and cared for by God, like through the gospel? Is that because you want to reflect the nature and character of God in that relationship? Like, is, is that your motivator? Or is it because you want this person to be something for you that only God can be for you? Is the functional role of this person in your life going to be to give you a sense of meaning and significance and value and worth and identity? If that's the case for you, then the good news of the gospel is that through being connected to Jesus, through faith in him, you have full access to just a wealth of identity and worth and value that like, like no other person can be that for you because there are some things that only God can be for you. And that infinite value and worth that you have through Jesus dwarfs any amount of value that you can find in that relationship. And God is inviting you into believing that in your heart so that you can be changed on the inside and not just on the outside. Like changing your relationship status, that can be a really good thing. It really can. My relationship status has changed in my life. Like, that's a good thing, okay? But it's more about, like, if you want to be focused on, like, like I'm changing and being changed and transformed in my heart, it's just, like, I need to ask, like, why is that something that I want? Another example, sometimes, like, we want to change uh, the, something is, like, uh, the quality or frequency of our spiritual disciplines like the quality or frequency of our spiritual disciplines. And when I say spiritual disciplines, what I just mean, that's just code for reading your Bible or praying or just stuff like that. But from a gospel perspective, the important question to ask is, why do you want to change or improve your spiritual disciplines in the first place? Is it simply because you belong to Jesus and you just want to know him better? Or is it because... It's something along, your motivation is something along the lines of like, well, I just feel really guilty if I didn't. So it has something to do with like guilt avoidance of some kind. And if that's the case for you, then the good news of the gospel is that all the guilt that you have earned and will earn in your life, Jesus was punished in your place and he canceled your guilt. Like through the gospel, you're able to pursue things like reading your Bible and praying and talking to him and just growing in those things and just like and your communication with him. And that's done out of the abundance of his favor, which is a lot different than guilt avoidance. Like that's good news. And he's inviting you into believing that in your heart so that you can be changed on the inside and not just on the outside. Like changing the quality or frequency of your spiritual disciplines, like that can be a really good thing. But you can't let an outward change like that come at the expense of the gospel changing your heart. And last one, like sometimes we want to change and stop looking at certain things on the internet. And when I frame it like that, like I'm keeping it PG because we all know what we're talking about with that. So from a gospel perspective, like that's a good, that's a really good change to make. But the important question is like, 
why do you want to stop looking at certain things on the internet? Is it because through faith in Jesus you belong to him and your identity is totally wrapped up into belong, in belonging to him? And like, man, your new identity of belonging to Jesus is just like, that's not who I am with like looking at certain things on the internet. Like, that's just not who I am, and that's why I want to change. Is that, is that why you want to change? Or is it because you just have some other motives, such as you'd just be really embarrassed if someone found out? And if that's the case for you, then the good news of the gospel is that you've already been caught and found out by God himself. Therefore, like, in our relationship with God, like, we aren't motivated by avoiding embarrassment from other people. Instead, we're motivated by an abundance of favor that we have from God, who we've already been found out from. In other words, God himself is at the center of our motivation. Like, people and other, other people aren't at the center of our motivation for those things. God is. Like, changing what you look at on the internet, like, that can be, that can, trust me, that can be a really good change to make, you know? But over the long haul, you can't let an outward change come at the expense of the gospel changing your heart. And just so you know, like, sometimes there is a, a such thing as a raw obedience that's needed when it comes to following Jesus. Like, God says to do this, and I need to do it, even though I don't feel like it. Like, sometimes there is, like, a raw obedience that's needed in following Jesus. But, but keep in mind that one of the ways that you know that your heart is chain, being changed by the gospel over the course of time is, that, is when that raw obedience is a place where you visit, and it's not a place where you live. If you can see over the course of time, it's like, man, like, that raw obedience, like, man, like, that, that's just the place where I'm visiting, and that's not a place where I live, like... Man, like, that's a good clue that, like, the gospel is just really changing your heart and not just your outward self. And, um, yeah, and those are just three examples of just, like, you know, because the Pharisees were talking about, like, just, man, it's like they were just, the outward appearance was just so important. But, like, when that comes at the expense of changing our, of our hearts being changed and the gospel changing it, it's like, man, that's a, that's a problem. But, um you know, it was like, I finished my sermon, I can't remember when I finished my sermon, but like, it was last night, I was just, I was thinking and praying about it a little bit more, and I was just like, you know, I think there's just like, something just a little bit extra that I just want to like, talk about, so, um, so, uh, so we have, we have a set of core values at River City, okay, it's on a piece of paper somewhere, um, so, one of our core values is the heart, and the reason why we have a core value of the heart is it like kind of the language of how we describe that is just like it's a lot of like what emanates from this passage right here when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. It's like, man, it's like, it's like when outward change comes at the expense of changing our heart, that's a problem. It's like the, roof, the way like the order of operations with gospel transformation is like when our, our heart is changed and then like the, our outward selves then change. It's like gospel change is like from the inside out. Okay, so... Because, like, and we really have that as a core value, like, in, our, in River City here, because if we don't, then the culture of our church, uh, the culture of any church, like, our church, whatever, like, if we don't have a, cult, have a core value of that, 
then the culture of the church just sometimes gets pretty weird. And in a lot of ways, like, it gets weird like the Pharisees, like what Jesus was talking about with them. It's just like the culture just gets very Pharisaical, just like, I don't know how people change, so, like, let's just create a bunch of, like, rules and traditions that just, like, focus on changing the outer self, and then, like, maybe people will look that way, and then, like, but, like, the problem, I mean, there's a lot of problems with that. One of the problems is that, like, you know, after a while, it's just like, man, like, I don't know if we're making disciples here. I just think we just kind of Frankenstein the church. It's like, yeah, kind of, it's alive technically, but I don't know if it is, I don't know. Um, so, um, so just, that just leads into the question of just like, what's our philosophy on how people change? So uh, we talk about this in our exciting and riveting membership class, but like, man, that's so good. Like, why do we just keep it in the membership class? So like, that actually, this actually fits really well with the passage today. So, because um, the question is like, um, what's our philosophy on how people change? Like, how do people change? And if I were to really sum up our philosophy, again, this is what we talk about in our membership class. Um, that philosophy can really be summed up in gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. So here at River City, in order for someone to grow and change in their heart, grow in their spiritual maturity, what they need is gospel plus safety plus time. Just like a plant needs water plus soil plus sunlight in order to grow, what we need is gospel plus safety plus time. So if you're meeting one-on-one with someone to help them grow and change, like what you need to be thinking is, like, what does gospel plus safety plus time look like for this person? Like if you're meeting with a small group of women to help them grow and change, like what you'd be thinking is, like, what does gospel plus safety plus time look like for this group, and how do I create a culture of gospel plus safety plus time in this particular group? When it comes to your small group, you need to be thinking, like, like um, what does gospel plus safety plus time look like in the culture of this group right here so that, like, real change from the heart can happen? So gospel plus safety plus time, those are the essential ingredients that we believe that everyone needs to grow and change in their, on a heart level. So I think each of those things are pretty self-explanatory, but I'm just going to really briefly explain each one. So, like, let's just start with gospel because, like, that's... That's the big thing. So 100% of everyone's spiritual growth ultimately happens by repenting and believing the truths of the gospel. And some people sometimes believe that, um, that the gospel gets you in the door of salvation, which is true, but like, that's just full stop. That's where, it's, that's where it ends. And like, from there on out, like, sp- your spiritual life of growing and changing, that just gets summed up in tips and tricks and do better, try harder, be inspired, or just kind of some kind of fluff and nonsense like that. But we know from studying scripture itself that like, the way that we grow in our spiritual maturity and the way that we change is always by it coming back to the person and the work of Jesus and applying the truths of the gospel to like, our thinking, our feeling, and our relating. That's why we encourage people to go through like materials like cross-centered life and stuff with source idols. And if you don't know what that is, that's totally fine. Like if you want to know, come find me. Um, but just like the when we have preaching, like it always comes back to the person and work of Jesus because that's where growth and change happens in the heart. It's like when we have small groups, it's like the person and work of Jesus is always like the front and center stage. Partially because like it naturally emanates from Scripture, but partially because like, well, that's how growth and change happens. That's gospel. Then, the, then there's the safety part. So safety 
It's about the kind of culture and environment and environment we create in our social relationships and our small groups and in our church in general. So in the words of Ray Ortland, who's like, a, he's a pastor in the network that we have, he says, safety is about having a culture of non-accusation where no one is pressured or cornered into spiritual maturity, but where we pursue spiritual maturity and growth and change, not out of fear of being shamed by others. But instead, we have safety with others so that we can relax and admit what's going on in our lives and hearts because we treat one another with gentleness and restraint. And, you know, there's a practice from the safety stuff. Man, like, there's a practical aspect of safety because, you know, it's just like, well, people, like, open up more, like, when there's safety. But there's a, theolo- a more important than theological aspect of safety because, man, it's like, when you have safety in a relationship with a person, like that, um, that points people, if done well, that points people to the greater reality. They are safety and refuge is ultimately found in Jesus. Like he's the one where we can go to our, for our safety and refuge. And then time. So time is part of the equation too. So um, I don't meet many people, um, including myself, who grow and change quickly or rapidly. I mean, if... If you're one of those people, that's great. Like, I, I think that's great. Um, but just think about how often, just think how long it's taken for you to change. So um, this isn't the most flattering thing to say about myself, but um, I think when I was in my 20s, um, I think I thought some people were complicated and some people weren't. <laughs> um, I... See, I was just like super ignorant back then. I'm just regular ignorant right now. So when I look at that now, I'm just like, I I think everybody's complicated. Like the more I get to know myself, I'm like, I think I'm pretty complicated. And like complicated people like us just need time and space to just evaluate our lives and apply the truths of the gospel to the deep levels of our heart. And like it or not, like that kind of deep change often happens in jagged, nonlinear ways. That's not an excuse for not growing or whatever. That's, like, that's not. But like, it takes time. Like, if we want change to happen in the hearts, like what Jesus is saying with the, like when he's talking to the Pharisees, like if we want change to happen in the heart and that like that expands to the out, the, to everywhere else in their lives. It's like that just takes time. And as Ray Ortland says, like spiritual maturity and growth and change don't happen by setting deadlines for people. So gospel plus safety plus time, that really sums up the kind of culture that we strive to um, create here at River City because um, that's how like, people's hearts change. And I really think that emanates from like, what we see like, in Jesus, like in Matthew 23 here. Yeah. And hopefully, in, I mean, no church is perfect, but man, like, I really hope that's like, something that you've just really experienced here at River City as well. And I just want you to know that like, you're being invited into being a part of that culture here at River City. And that first starts with just responding to Jesus and the gospel and the way that he's calling you to. Like, what is he calling you to in terms of, like, um, your heart and your life and where change needs to happen, what you need to believe? Um, Man, it's just, like, all those kind of things. It's, like, that's how we respond to Jesus. It's just by, like, believing the gospel and just, like, so when we take communion here at River City, that's a symbolic way of responding to Jesus and all this. 
When you take communion, that's a symbolic way of responding to him by saying, I remember you, I believe in you, I put my faith in you, I'm pushing all the chips of my life into the middle with you. Like, I'm a mess and I need you to transform my heart. Like, I want to believe the gospel. Because if that's the kind of posture and, like, the desire that you have this morning, that communion is totally for you. The bread represents his body. The drink represents his blood. And those things were broken and they were shed for you. I think I'd encourage you to pray on your own as you sit in your chair before you take communion. Like, talk to him authentically in your own words about what's weighty and on your heart and um, from what you heard from his word this morning. Like, you don't need to be a member here to take communion. You just need to be on board with following Jesus and like wanting the gospel to transform your heart. If that's like the desire that you have, then like go res- like respond to him on your own and go to take communion. So there's two communion stations in the back. There's one right there and one right there. You take the bread, like you dip it in the juice, and like that's how you take communion here. So the worship team is going to be coming on up. Um, they're going to be playing three songs. You can go on up and take communion whenever you are ready during those three songs. Let's pray. Yeah. So God, we're really thankful that, um, I mean, that was a really hard word that you, you gave um, to the religious leaders. Um, but we're just really thankful for like your heart in that, that um, like there's a way that you want us to change. You want us to believe the gospel and you want that to be like in our hearts and from our hearts and to be transformed that way, God. We just, we trust you that like um, as we respond to you like right now and as we respond to you throughout this week, God, that like... Um, yeah, that you'll just really empower us to just really, like, to desire you for the right reasons. Not to be overly, overly introspective about that, but just to really rest in you and have you be our refuge, God. Yeah, so we need you and we love you. Amen.